Hello, folks. Welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to say thank you so much to Mr. Paul Buckley, whose generous donation has covered the costs of this week's podcast. So, Paul, this episode is dedicated to you. In the five plus years since the podcast launched, we've managed to run it without any adverts, and I'd like to continue in this manner. But the costs of producing each show are growing annually. So if you're interested in making a one-off or a regular donation to the podcast to help us cover our costs, then in return, I'll dedicate the show to you and you can even record your own introduction. On top of that, we'll avoid that thorny issue of adverts. You can find a link in the show notes below or you could email beth at thetriathloncoach.com if you'd like further details. And at the end of the episode, I'll also explain about the benefits of our new members club. So please stay tuned for that. Okay, so the race season's almost on us and this week I want to share with you some tips on how you can improve your running. You might think that running faster is the key or maybe it's more often. My guest this week is the highly respected running coach Bobby McGee and he firmly believes that the key to better running is mechanical efficiency. So we'll talk about biomechanics, posture, the importance of dynamic mobility and running drills, run-specific strength work, and much more. And towards the end of the conversation, Bobby's also got some very specific advice for our older runners, which you might find surprising on how you can adapt your training to stay healthy and maintain your performance. I loved this conversation with Bobby. He was really open and explained all these things in great detail. So let's crack on and hear from Bobby McGee. Welcome to the show, Mr. Bobby McGee. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Very nice to be on the show, Simon. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, I love the accent and it uh, in in some small way reminds me of home, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've we've had a we've had a whole lot of accents on this um, show over the years, and I've also had a lot of guests from Boulder, but I don't think I've ever had any guests from Boulder with a South African accent. So you're, you're hitting a first there. Oh, good, because there's a lot of South Africans uh, here as well. You know, uh, my good friend Mark Platches, the uh, world marathon champion, is here too, and his accent is. Uh, Mm-hmm. you know even heavier than mine so he might be somebody you want to talk to at some point just for accent's sake <laughs> <laughs> well let's for those people who haven't heard of you bobby and uh, if if they're interested at all in running or running mechanics i would hope that they have but please could you just give us a little bit of backstory about yourself how you came to be so well known in the running industry who you've worked with what what your sort of key key philosophies are and then we can start disappearing down some more rabbit holes Sounds good. Well, the first thing is my name's not Bobby. I'm a I'm a child of the 50s and therefore Janis Joplin and me and Bobby McGee was the big thing when I was in university and I got the nickname. Um, so uh, maybe we'll leave it a bit of a secret there in terms of <laughs> what, what, what my real name is. Um, so I've been uh, involved in distance uh, endurance, mostly running um, since... Oof, probably uh, early 80s um i studied in in uh, in the 70s in south africa at the university of stellenbosch uh i would i did human movement studies back then already so i'm one of those rare cats that still does what he trained to do formally and then 
And now I've been at it, I think this is my 43rd or 42nd year of, of coaching distance runners and triathletes. And I sort of started specializing with triathletes in 2002 and have always sort of fallen into the niche of, of either um, uh, psychological performance skills for endurance athletes and then running mechanics as well. So th those have been my two areas where I've got um, probably the most uh, contributions um, since, since uh, you know, since the early 2000s. But I've coached a number of distance runners um, and uh, not a lot of medalists, actually. I, I think the only real medalist was Josiah winning the marathon in, in, uh, in Atlanta, that I worked with uh, quite a bit. But when you work with an African runner, they are self-driven individuals, right? And it's sort of not fair to claim that you were their coach. You're more more the guide and the friend and the mentor. Um, but but since 2002, mostly with triathletes and, and especially in triathlon, the need for running mechanics became, uh, you know, larger with the, with the negative effects of the bike and the swim and people coming from those those differing backgrounds which might have impacted their running you know negatively and not allowed them to develop as pure runners so that's that's pretty much what it is it got seemed to have got involved in that niche uh but i still view myself mostly as a running coach well that's really interesting bob because um what you've just said there about the you know the differences of running mechanics for triathletes and the impact of the bike i that, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, in just a few moments. But before then, when a runner first contacts you and comes to see you, and I guess, do, do you insist that they come? I mean, let's say somebody like myself uh, got in touch from the UK. Do you insist that that person has to make a trip out to Boulder? Or can you help somebody with their running technique by using some of the modern technology that's available, like, um, like video and um, video sharing or live streaming video? Um, no, I don't insist. Um, you know, normally if it's a professional athlete, then, then I would insist that, that I get to see them. And it normally requires you sort of at least two 90 minute sessions to set them on their way. But the last three or four years, I've come to the realization that I can probably do it remotely, but I can't do it on my own. Right. So I've teamed up with a, with a, a gentleman by the name of Matt Pendola, who's, uh, um, you know, really should be more celebrated, but celebrated um, strength and conditioning coach who specializes in working with both runners and triathletes. And we've come up with four pillars that we work with these athletes on. But in, in short order, it would be some video at race pace and at easy pace. And then I can I can take a look at that video and make some recommendations and definitely get into an assessment, uh, train three weeks assessment, train three weeks, and see if we can alter some of those less less efficient mechanics. So it is doable by video. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's new for me, but in terms of it being formalized, it is it's reasonably new for me. But it seems to work pretty well. But you know, my more marquee clients like you know, Flora, Duffy, and and Gwen Jorgensen, that involved a lot of hands-on work over over multiple months and even multiple years. Mm. It's not much of a hardship to go to Bermuda for a week or two, though, I guess. Oh, I've, I've never been, actually. You know, really? Bold, uh, Flora lives in Boulder for um, 
probably most of the year when she's not traveling and the other the other part of the year when when the winter is like it's looking outside at the moment here in boulder with what i don't know there's already probably two inches of snow on the ground as of last night um mm. she uh, lives in south africa until the weather warms up here so she has residences in in both countries because her husband is a south african okay great so um so this this person this this triathlete comes to gets in touch asks you to um help them out what, when you're assessing that running technique what are the key things that you're looking for then so it's it's important for you know uh if if that's their ask i want you to look at my mechanics and it's important to look at you know why did they come to me in the first place were they injured did they have some sort of data from a power meter or something that indicates that there's a mechanical uh, you know, deficiency in terms of their mechanical efficiency. So, uh, you know, a lot of them work with exercise science-based coaches who you can speak to, you know, how optimized their physiology seems to be on the bike, you know, mm-hmm. and they might have, you know, reasonable um, form in the water, but they feel that their running is their weak point. Uh, then one of those two things would be, would the, de- de- be the initial ask. But the first time I see them, I'm getting a global picture. I'm looking at pretty much what I call the three C's. I'm looking at how compact they are, how connected they are, what kind of cadence they have. And that will encompass things like posture and it will um, definitely encompass having a look at um, their coordination. How do their arms work? How do their elbow joints work? How do their shoulders work relative to their hips, their pelvis, their knees, and their ankles? So I'm very much a kinetic chain guy. It's almost automatic for me to move around. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I will always say to an, to a client, look, I'm going to do something completely wrong now. We've been at this for a couple of weeks, and now I'm just going to go right to what we're seeing kinematically, and we're going to change that and see if it's an awareness thing or a habitual thing. But generally, I'm looking at a much more holistic picture. Um, there are a couple of key points that I always notice that are, you know, hallmarks, and that's the the disconnection of the of the rib cage with the with the pelvis, uh, especially in the in the in the front quadrant, and. Uh, how how the elbow joint functions is also a bit a big one for me, and then um, the last one probably would be shin angle that I that I really use to see if if the interventions that we are putting in place are helping the athlete. But always from a standpoint of it's not tennis, it's not cricket, it's it's not it's none of the technical sports, right? So there's no direct. Mm-hmm interventions with a kind of like step one i want you to do this it's all about set points ranges of motion and things that impact cadence and balance okay wow there's a lot for me to unpick there to start with so i've heard a lot of commentators and coaches talk about being compact and i'm sure our listeners do too can you just give me a brief explanation of of how you would define being compact i I mean or maybe i'll give you mine and then you can tell me whether i'm whether I'm on the right track for me, it's you know you, you're not kicking out wildly behind you. Your your arms and, and legs are sort yeah. of staying in quite a nice small area, and they're not sort of going everywhere. Um, yeah, I think I think that that would be a good uh, sort of gross explanation. But if you saw t- kicking out wildly behind you, I would say that's Kenyan. There's a lot of wild kicking out behind them, but it's very linear. <laughs> 
And so yeah. I'm talking about things that are non-linear or off-plane. And understanding off-plane in in uh, running terms is interesting because you're talking about a cyclic event mm. and you're talking about linear motion, but it's uh, there is definitely some rotation, controlled rotation, that I hate even mentioning the word when I'm working with an athlete saying rotation because um, rotation is very, very uh, – superficially understood by the athlete and explaining to them uh, rotation achieves the linear movement. And so it's like cadence, right? You you don't want people to up their cadence as a primary objective. You want their cadence to up because of something that they are doing. A good cadence is a, as a result of a good cadence is not something manufactured. And so I have this love-hate relationship with a metronome, right? <laughs> Because if you don't have good anthropometry numbers, the metronome can create tremendous injuries because mm. people are trying to follow it, right? It's like trying to follow a, an orchestra conductor and you don't know how to play a violin. <laughs> you know, it's it's, yeah, got it's it, yeah. not an easy business. I was actually sharing a, a video today of Tiranesh Dibaba. There's a, a YouTube video which yes, I've yes, seen yes. a lot. And it's when she's winning the 10,000-meter world championship. And um, they, they show the last lap when she's clearly going to, to try and out-sprint her nearest competitor. And then they go back over it and add a few comments like um, foot landing under the you know centre of gravity, um, minimal definition of quadriceps at the front, so nice and relaxed, lots of high back kick, which is very high, as you talk about in the East Africans. But, but one comment that keeps coming up is very compact running style. Um, and I, 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 you know, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of good examples, but that that video of Tiranesti Barber is, to me, encapsulates some very nice running style at, at maximum velocity for her. Yeah, it's a, the whole thing with with the comparison between the uh, the Ethiopians and the Kenyans is fascinating because the Ethiopians have, um, for want of a better word, they have much more European anthropometry in terms of their torso length and their leg length versus the Kenyans. So the using the Ethiopians as as models for running is 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 a little bit more universal than using the Kenyans, right? So they have a higher knee lift, more piston type running. They are more compact, right? Uh and they also have a, a different power to weight ratio kind of setup. So it it's fascinating to look at that in that regard. I mean, I love all the work that's been done about why are the Kenyans so good and very seldom do does that dis di, you know, they're both both great rift valley people and they both come from altitude, but they have very, very different uh running styles. I'm not so sure if there's a huge difference between how they train. But when you compare, mm. you know, the the muscularity of a Bekele to the flow of a Kipchoge, you know, you start to see that, you know. Although I feel that Kipchoge is sort of in the middle there. He has that that quad size and that that foot action, you know, when he is on the ground, that that is is quite Ethiopian as well. So, you know, not not all great Rift Valley runners are are the same, but they achieve the similar results. Well, that, that's that's really interesting that you talk about the anthropometrical sort of influence of uh, on somebody's running, as much as, uh, and I'm sure we're going to get to talk about this as much as the environmental 
um, and the way somebody lives their life and the way they've been brought up, um, which we may come on to a bit later on. So you, you talk about compactness. Um, you mentioned connected as the second of the season. Then you talk about the rib cage and the pelvis. So are you saying that actually you want to have a disconnect so those two are able to move independently so they're more fluid rather than it being really rigid? No, I actually want them to be more connected uh, from from ribs to pelvis, but mm-hmm. I do want to be considerable movement when they when they are reaching with the elbow. So it's a contralateral motion, like like most human mm-hmm. motions are. So you definitely want that that shoulder movement uh, contralaterally to the to the hip mo- movement, but you really don't want a lot of side to side with the chest. And then definitely don't want the chest popping up and disconnecting from the front of the pelvis, which often happens due to, you know, fatigue in the spine. And it's still open to research here, right? So you compare somebody like Ingebrigtsen to Coe, you know, which is Mm -hmm. is a widespread, right? But Coe Mm -hmm. was disconnected chest to pelvis. Right. And so he really had that very high chest. And there is some advantage to that. Right. The the advantage that I would see is that you would have a very quick thigh reset because, you know, there's only those two main reflex actions in running. Right. The one in the hip flexors for leg resetting and then the one in the in the lower lumbar spine for contralateral movement, left, right movement. And so you would think that Co was able to reset his feet very quickly because his chest was back, all right. Whereas uh, Co's uh, advantage with gravity was was uh, diminished because of that. Whereas somebody like Ingebrigtsen has learned to keep his shoulders forward no matter what goes on. So when he fatigues, he's almost like uh, um, the four hundred meter runner from South Africa, Fanika. Panikirk has that ability at the end of a 400 that he does not lose that connection. And those are incredible examples because you know that everything that is in their body reacting from a defense mechanism is to pull that chest up, and they don't. They keep it down, and it's it's such a brutal advantage. It is unbelievable if people start to understand the value of keeping that chest connected in the front. And, wow. and not impair their breathing through that, right? Because you you upset your diaphragm as much by going back as you upset it by going too far forward. So there's, you know, when I speak to biomechanists out of the sprinting world, they hate me because they say, Bobby, everything of yours is in the middle, right? It's not too much. It's not too little. It's all Goldilocks for you. Whereas we're <laughs> looking for extremes and we find your word hard, world hard to understand, you know? Um. So... When you get triathletes that come along, um, do you find that these things like connectedness and that ability to, you know, talk about all of those things you, you've just described um, is more challenging for them because there's a certain element of fatigue when they get off the bike and after they swim? They, you know, if you're elite triathletes like Flora, by the time they get off the bike, they're already what, what, 80 minutes into a race, 90 minutes in, so, and they've been going pretty hard. You know, they're, they're not maybe not quite at threshold, but they're not far off it. Um, so there's a certain amount of fatigue there. So is the perfect running form challenging for them? And is the ability of somebody to get to the line uh, first as much an ability of not, not allowing fatigue to take effect as it is about their running pace? Yes, again, I think that that's uh, a partially part of the answer, right? So... 
to take it right to the beginning, every every triathlete over specific distances have uh, a reasonably um, easily to determine fatigue index, right? So they they fatigue a certain amount. So if they tow the line uh, in a triathlon, let's say it's a, a draft legal Olympic distance triathlon, if they tow the line and they their open running shape is X, let's say it's um, you know, an athlete like Morgan Pearson, who's a very, very fast runner as an open runner, right? He's a 13 and a half minute uh, uh, five counter, or even Alex Yee at, at like, say, 13, 20. But the, the important part of that equation is, is they are starting the race in that shape. That's not their shape. That's their best, right? But But what is their actual shape on the day? And if they have a reasonably normal bike ride, you know, with the normal amount of spikes of power and so on that they normally train for, all right? In other words, they haven't had a really easy bike of it that somebody was doing all the work up front, and they've also hadn't played catch-up because they had a poor swim, right? So they had a, a reasonably normal bike ride, right? And it's a normal flat run and the temperature's under control. It's not super hot because heat plays a very different role over 10K in a triathlon than it does over 10K. And it's the period of exposure, right? So we we probably looking at a number like the very best run only 3% slower than their shape on the start line, all right? Um, over 10K. Now, that's a little less over 5K, and then by the time you get to Ironman, it's a much bigger number than 3%, you know, because you look at the top triathletes, they probably, if they train slightly for it and they could handle the intensity of the marathon over the duration, the top guys are probably still, you know, 216 to 220 guys, all right? And then they go and run you know, 235, 240 off the bike, somewhere somewhere in that range, right? So the pure triathletes that have come along for a very long period of time, they run a lot closer to their open running time because they've always been triathletes, right? Whereas the pure runners run quite a lot slower, but they still have an advantage, the pure runners, because eventually they're going to figure it out and then their percentage is going to get closer, right? Mm -hmm. Either way, the uh, Australian Institute of Sport did a really interesting research project. I'm not sure how long ago that was now. It's definitely longer than a decade ago where they found that a smaller percentage of professional triathletes lose access to their open running kinematics totally, completely. They run differently off the bike, then they run open. So it never comes back to them. And that number with with the amateur triathlete is much bigger. It might be as much as 30 plus percent. I'm, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was 30 plus percent of them run differently off the bike to how they run open. Other research has shown that it takes anywhere between, you know, 90 seconds, two, three minutes for for your normal running to come back underneath you with only fatigue as a factor. But even a recent research project with collegiate-level male club triathletes found that if you preloaded them with the run and had a look at their mechanical efficiency after a run and how their mechanical efficiency in the second run was impacted versus a bike ride, there's tremendous decrease in their in their mechanical efficiency after coming off the bike.
So the bike is definitely problematic. And there's a number of reasons for that, right? Firstly, the primarily what's happening in the run is eccentric contraction, right? So you're stabilizing joints and then you are loading connective tissue and then you're releasing that connective tissue. And so there is a lot of contractile activity going on, but that contractile activity is kind of unloaded. It's not while they're on the ground. Whereas a cyclist is uh, concentric muscle contraction all the time, right? There's very little eccentric muscle contraction. Maybe in the soleus Achilles tendon at the bottom of the pedal stroke, there's a little bit of a rebound, especially if they're climbing or or they're sprinting. But generally speaking, it's it's the muscles are getting shorter. They're not getting longer. All right. And so so when you try and run with strength, I call it muscling the run, it's very apparent. It's loss of kinematics. So when you, you know, in South Africa, this wonderful period of time um, from a sport perspective where because of apartheid, um, these athletes would make the national team, but that would be it. That was the highest point they could achieve. They couldn't race internationally, et cetera, et cetera. The irony that, you know, all of the top runners for over the distances were 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 people of color who were losing this advantage to participate internationally because the international community was trying to help them. It was so ironic. I think a brilliant thing would have been is, okay, you can run internationally if you're a black person, you know, or if you're a person, you know, um, of color, but you can't. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I digress. But we used to have a super sport competition where all the cricketers, all the rugby players, all the soccer players all the uh, gymnasts, all the national team athletes would come together and they would do this massive decathlon type event, right? Where, you know, the cyclists would have to run and the runners would have to cycle and so on and so forth. And typically every year the gymnasts would win, right? Because they are such supreme all-around athletes. But the cyclists, oh my goodness, they sucked at everything except cycling. They were appalling runners. They were appalling with upper body strength. They were appalling with speed. They couldn't do anything other than ride the bikes like superstars, you know. So it was. It's a good indication in triathlon that you know if you if you master the bike mechanically and your hierarchy of training, which so often happens in triathlon, right, is very skewed towards the bike, you're going to really hurt your run. So a lot of my work would be. It is all about the bike, <laughs> and especially in long course racing. And ride your bike in such a way that you meet the demands of competition and that the math works out. If you're a really, really good cyclist, make sure you make up more time on the bike than you're going to lose on the run. So play that game. But generally speaking, don't do anything on the bike that prevents you from running what you're capable of. And so even today, overbiking is the most common error that age group triathletes make, right? Because in 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 the simplest of terms, when you start becoming a triathlete, if you have a bit of swimming in your background and your technique is is ingrained, your your swimming progresses quite quickly. But nothing progresses as quickly as your bike fitness. It's just stratospheric, you know, because it's such a simple movement. Yeah. And then when you go to the run, it takes so much longer. And so people tend to leave it aside. You were saying, Simon? I, I was going to say, it, you know, I've been coaching Ironman triathletes for 30 years now. And, and over that time, I've come to realize that upon the completion of a long distance race, there's usually two, two comments that I hear back from athletes. The first would be, 
I had a great ru- I had a great ride. My running sucked. They're probably the guys that you talk about that lose more time on the run than they gain on the bike. And then exactly. I have the other comments from people who say, I had a fantastic run. I probably could have gone a bit harder on the bike. And the reason, you know, the reason why they had such a fantastic run was because they saved a bit on the bike. And of course, I think that, that what you're explaining there is the fact that we sometimes forget, particularly if you're having an awesome day, that we have to, we have all these matches and we need to spread them over the whole race, not just to swim on the bike. And if you burn them too early, um, it's the last half of the runway you see it all deteriorate. And the, the, you know, I've watched people starting off the run that that are keeping that technique together. You know, they're still pretty tall. They're still the chests up, the hips are high, the heads looking forwards. And then by the time they start the second lap and they're into twenty five k, the heads drop, the hips have dropped. That they've got no spring in in their ankles, and they're just they're, they're just shuffling along. And it's only getting worse from there. Um, yes, and it, probably. I think you probably coach people to think that you know it's not about necessarily about being the fastest runner. It's about being the person who slows down the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's so many uh, sayings in the world like that, right? So if I had a, if I had a pound for every athlete that said to me, uh, "I ran really well today. I should have started a little faster. If I'd known I was going to go that well, I would have started faster." No, you wouldn't have run that well, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. No, that's absolutely it. I have a little phrase that I do for the age groupers. I'm saying to them. Whatever power and whatever bike ride you can put out, if there wasn't a run at the end of the bike ride, you would have to continue at that same intensity for the period of time that you expected to run for. Mm. You know, yeah. so if it took X to get there, what would it take to go for another four hours at the same intensity on the bike? If you can't do it on the bike, you, how can you even begin to ask yourself to do it on the run? <laughs> you know? oh, but there's the whole concept thing. of the central governor, right? The central governor will – it's it's an interesting thing, right? So the younger male triathlete will find it impossible to pace themselves initially. It is a mm. huge feat of focus and concentration and holding back to get that right. That's why the ultra-distance athletes t- tend to be a little older. You know, they they are a little bit later in their careers, right? And that's why that lovely conundrum of husband and wife decide to do triathlon together. Husband wins the sprint by three minutes, wins the Olympic distance by two minutes. Uh, you know, they're pretty even over 70.3. And then the wife beats him by half an hour in the yeah, iron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of blokes. Uh, there's a lot of blokes despairing at the end of those long distance races when their the, the, their wife gets to take home the household trophy for that day. <laughs> um, Bobby, I uh, I'd like to go back. You just on that. Um, just let's touch on that third of the seas, the cadence. Um, I see a lot of stuff out there where runners are told that you know 180 is the magic cadence, so 90 steps per. Per foot per minute. Do you do you agree with that? Or because you did talk earlier about the, the dangers of um, chasing a cadence when anthropometrics aren't in your favour. Yes, yes. So c- cadence is neurologic, right? And it's and it's a pattern. So in in some ways, it's like when in doubt, if you're a long course triathlete, when in doubt, ride the bike, right? Uh, and in biomechanics with running off the bike is when in doubt, increase your cadence, right? But there are two parts that govern that. One, The one is anthropometry, right? 
and then the other one is is uh, is posture. So those those are the two main things that that govern cadence, right? And so and and under posture, there are a lot of things fall in strength, balance, stability, all all of those things. But basically speaking, uh, cadence is associated with with velocity as well, right? So an elite runner will have a much lower cadence when they are running slowly. And they're doing their zone one, zone two stuff. And they will have a much higher cadence when they're doing hill sprints or they're doing quarters or they're doing 200s or something like that. So cadence moves up and down. So telling somebody who's, you know, 55 years old and is six foot four and has 34 inch legs in seams that their cadence should be 180 is an exercise in futility. You're just going to hurt that athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Um there is a little bit of an inverse effect there. So a very tall athlete should also have a short cadence. But generally speaking, the taller athletes with the longer legs and the shorter torsos will have a slightly lower cadence. So you take a, a Mo Farah, for example. So Mo, very, very light, very, very short torso, very, very long legs, can run 10,000 meters in under 27 minutes with a cadence of, you know, 92, 94, so, you know, 180 188 somewhere in there right uh and again your smaller athletes like some of like Ayueda or some of the mm. the smaller japanese girls in triathlon they will be up at 110 so they'll take 220 steps a minute um so it really that that's the one part of it uh but there is an absolute too low limit it doesn't matter where you're at if you traipsing around at 150 you know steps a minute you hurting your performance. You biomechanically inefficient. You are dissipating any elastic energy you're storing as opposed to returning it to your stride. And then just anecdotally, from a distance perspective, no matter how you could be four foot ten, right? You're still not going to be neurologically efficient if you're going more than two twenty steps a minute. So we all need to fall in there, and it then becomes a very individual thing, right? When you do what creates cadence, you know, I work with Ben Canute quite a lot. For Ben to have a stride angle, which is between his front hamstring and his back thigh of, of 90 degrees is really good for Ben, right? Ben comes from, you know, he's got a longer torso, he's got shorter legs, right? He's very, very effective Ironman, half Ironman, right? Athlete, like one of the top in the world, right? But he can he can rev up his cadence, and we've worked on his cadence. Obviously, we optimized his functional range of motion for for the running motion. But we're not going to go beyond what we've already got, right? Whereas somebody like Gwen, that same angle is 107 degrees. You know, so she can afford to take a lower cadence. She's a she's a, a lighter athlete overall, right? She carries less muscle. And she's got a lower cadence. So her cadence at 94 um, with a stride length of, I think, in her heyday was around about 1.74 meter stride length, right? That's excessive stride length for, for a female athlete. But she could sustain that for, for 33 minutes, right? So she was eating up the ground with a slightly lower cadence. Now she's getting a little stronger. And I don't know if you saw in New Plymouth yesterday, uh, she ran very very effectively oh no it was saturday sorry she ran very very effectively 
had some things go down on the bike, had a bit, a bit of a bad swim and so on. But you still, I think, third fastest run of the day. But her cadence has come up, mm-hmm. all right? And so I'm looking at her straight <laughs> angle. That was a little reduced, but her straight angle is almost back to where it was. So now I've got two more steps a minute at the same stride length. I'm winning, right? Mm. <laughs> So, you know, that's that's to me uh, a, a little bit more of a complex explanation of, of how that equation works. Yeah, and I, I think I understand you, Bobby, there in the same way that with, with swimming, you know, you, I hear some coaches and a lot of recreational athletes, perhaps who don't understand the biomechanics and the anthropometrics of swimming either, talk about um, an arm cadence in the pool. And then somebody will say, well, what about that guy? He's got, he's got a wingspan of, a, you know, an albatross. Um, and how's he going to get a short? How's he going to get the same turnover as that five foot five female triathlete there? You're not. Um, but there's a range, isn't there? There's an effective range that most people are within. And 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 like you said about how the good athletes can change their cadence, and they know how to change the cadence. They know what they're doing. It's not thought. Or, they don't think about it. it. Just it's just innate. The swimmers can do that as well. And that comes that that skill of skill of practice, isn't it? And doing what you're doing and and understanding the feel. Um, the economy conversation is a complex conversation, right? But it still comes down to your fundamental is stride length times stride rate, you know, equals velocity. That, that's it, right? And so as a, from a biomechanical standpoint, I'm looking at an athlete seeing where I can find gains. But I can't find gains outside the athlete's capacity and that's why anthropometry plays such a large role uh also apologies you you mentioned range of motion there and you've talked about the, the biomechanics and working with you what you've got but i wonder how you can improve what you've got by including some regular movement practice now, i use that i use that term movement practice deliberately it's one that kelly starette uses but basically it's i don't know if are you familiar with kelly um become like a supple leopard he's the um, he's the guy that no i'm not no yeah, i'm not so, sadly i i need to um, look that up <laughs> yeah he's he's he has this thing called being in the ready state because he says that's how leopards are you know when they're in the bush they that they look like they're, they're sleepy but then if a gazelle was to go past they'd be ready to pounce on them and run at high speed um but he talks about movement practice i, I like to talk about daily mobility but it's something that certainly the recreational triathletes that i work with are not very good at because they've got limited time to train and they see more they feel like they see more return on their investment from spending time on the bike and in the pool and running um whereas for myself um i understand i think i understand um certainly from speaking to people like yourself and the physiotherapist that um having more mobility having a little bit better range of motion around around the upper back around the shoulders around the hips um is actually beneficial for mechanical efficiency and a, a resilience point of view for avoiding injury. So yeah. can so you just explain your thoughts on on including that and how you get it in into a practice, in, into a program for people who are limited on time? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I think my first answer to that would be if you have an hour available at lunchtime to, to get some training in and your coach has said, go run for an hour, in zone two, typically what a triathlete would do would go run low zone three, right? So they'd go gray zone straight away <laughs> because they'd get in more miles, look better in the logbook, right? And so 
you take dynamic mobility. If I do a one-hour dynamic mobility session with my athletes, that's only about three kilometers that they cover, right? And so <laughs> um, they are not willing to give up 15 minutes or eight minutes of their hour doing dynamic mobility work, right? So when it comes to range of motion, I, I consider you know stretching like coffee, right? So it depends on what generation or what year you listen to a podcast on should you stretch or shouldn't you stretch coffee's bad for you coffee's good for you coffee's bad for you coffee's good for you that's how stretching is right so uh what what matt pendola and i have come up with in terms of run form is this whole concept that there's four pillars to work on right and those four pillars cover that mechanical efficiency cover that neurologic component as well right but those four pillars are one is dynamic mobility work, right? So the, with the emphasis on dynamic mobility. So all of these are exaggerations of motions that you will require when you run, all right? The second one is some sort of strength work, but based on that stability, that joint stability, uh, which is we just call it banded dynamics because most of the work occurs very effectively with bands for the vast majority of athletes before they need to graduate to to any kind of weights, right? And most people can go their entire career without needing weights at all. So those we call banded dynamics. But the next two are the skills learning component, right? And I always say with running mechanics, you only want to run as well as you've ever run, as what your body is capable of. So if you were running the best you ever looked was 14 years old. I mean, I, I once saw a picture of Flora running when she was maybe 13, 12, maybe beautiful on the track, just the most exquisite form. And the first thing I see when I spoke to her about that picture, the first thing she said to me is, if only I could look like that today. You're right. So my work is really quite easy. I'm not giving her anything she's never had before. I'm just uncovering what she's always had. So that that's that that third thing is the skills learning, which we call form drills, right? So giving people drills that help them restore their normal running time at kinematics. That the the way of moving that they've always been able to move at, but life intervened along the way, like the bike. <laughs> All right. And then the last thing we call loaded mobility. So the understanding of mobility within endurance sports, especially like running, right, is understanding how that muscle needs to function as you restore it. So something that we used to consider, for example, um, to be a strength activity, which would be a reverse Nordic curl, right? So you're on your knees, you've got your hips forward, and then you lean back as far as you can go, right? That's loaded mobility, all right? And we now know from, from various bits of work done by these, these high-end physical therapists and so on that for sports that require joint stability and, and not laxity, right, whether that's throwing or sprinting or distance running, that... Stretching is a bad idea, right? Because you destabilize joints. And not only do you destabilize joints, you uh, you switch off muscle groups, right? And so that needs to be dynamic. So we just, you know, we term that loaded mobility. And those are what we consider as the four pillars of, of building uh, good mechanics. That's really interesting. I, lo I love the specificity there. And I think that, that, that that's very important. Um when you're looking at multi-sport athletes as well, is what, what do they need to do 
um, for that specific sport in order to enhance the training that they do, not to make themselves stronger or bigger. It's not an ego thing about looking in the mirror. It's about what what do I need to do to to make myself a better runner? I can distinctly remember reading an article about Katie Ledecky, the swimmer. And, um, you know, the, her coach was saying, we have a strength coach and we've chatted about his role. And his role is not to help Katie bench press a, a personal best to squat twice her body weight. His role is to make sure that she has the physical resilience to turn up on poolside for every single session that I'm planning for her and to be able to perform that session and come back the next day. And that's it. So you're building resilience. You're building an ability to absorb the training. And when you're dealing with people who are wanting to do long-distance triathlon, that's an awful lot of training, even for a recreational athlete. That's an awful lot of training to be able to absorb. And you talk about you know other things like life getting in the way. For your average recreational triathlete, life getting in the way is probably sitting in a car for several hours a week, sitting on a plane, being sat at a desk and trying to counteract all that sort of Western living type of posture as well, isn't it? Which is, you know, well, it's damaging to tight, to hip flexors. It makes them too tight for running and biking and swimming effectively. Um, so, yeah, th- those are my thoughts. It's a, a, Again, it's a complex subject that we could spend probably a whole podcast discussing, shouldn't we? Maybe, maybe we could get Matt on and uh, spend some time discussing that whole that whole thing. Absolutely. I, you know... Um... You know, when you ask me, you know, what I'm, what's the first thing that I do is, you know, you get a global. Actually, one of the first things that I do is, is I ask the athlete permission to be able to put my hands on them, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's so important in, in, in the modern era. And then the first thing I do is I grab their forearm and I'd grab, I mean, I grab their upper arm and grab their forearm and I would attempt to put it in a position. And the athlete's response to that, whether they go completely slack and allow me to do that, or whether they try and get ahead of the game and try and put it in the place where they think I want it, determines how I'm going to approach that entire session. Because it tells me about the athlete's ability to be mechanically coached, you know? And so if I have an athlete that holds on real tight and tries really hard to get ahead of where I'm going, then I know Mm -hmm. that's going to take a while. All right. Whereas an athlete that's completely compliant saying, all right, I'm just going to let him put me where I need. And you can see that the minute you start working with a professional athlete, they once they've decided to trust you and they know you you have the creds that are going to help them get better. They are so neurally plastic and they are so physically plastic as well. They they absorb. That's that's the difference to me about the great pros. Um, even mm. somebody like Gwen, right, who by her own admission says, I'm a slow learner, I take a long time to get hold of this. But her willingness and her application and her, like she will do it until she masters it. It's relentless. That's a, mm. it's a, it's a nice segue, actually. Yeah, I, I found the same with swimmers, that if you say to them, right, there's, there's something about your technique, um, I'd like you to try this. You can maybe give them a video. You can sort of say, well, I want your arm to, I want your elbow to be up here, not here. And, um, you know, to do that, you're going to have to internally rotate at the thumb or touch. The good swimmers can feel what their body's doing and make those changes. Um, one of my friends who's a strength and conditioning uh, guy in team sport used to call the other people who couldn't get those movement patterns motor morons because you could tell them, I'd like you to carry out this movement. You need to do this and this and here. And you can see some people are athletically minded and they could pick it up straight away or within one or two goes and other people just, they just don't get it at all. Um, yeah, no, I, I, 
I uh, I appreciate that term as well, but I cannot use it anymore. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. I, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't use it in public. It was um, or to an athlete but directly. But it was when we were when we were chatting as coaches, he would say to me, you know, they're just they they just don't have those motor skills to be able to actually conceptualize what that change in movement is. Um, and that makes coaching to those, that makes coaching those folks actually quite difficult, doesn't it? Yes, yes. No, and and it comes into the world of of performance skills, right? Is is the mm. understanding the the true meaning of what it means to be vulnerable? You know what it means to be open. What it means to go mm. and to understand, right? That the that the cognitive mind is a very slow processor, all right, and it gets very little information from the reticular articulating system and knowing that if an athlete understands, listen, understand what I'm telling you, try and feel passively what I'm explaining to you and then go let your subconscious work on that. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's brilliant research out there with these self healing concepts right where we can heal bone and we can heal all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. with the power of our mind and that is the same when it comes to to mechanics and to physiology right is having a deep understanding of what makes the movement happen having a basic understanding of anatomy having a basic understanding of muscle function and then as an educator us as coaches be having that level of patience and that level of neutrality to be absolutely okay with where the athlete is capable of starting. Just saying, all right, so this this athlete is going to need a longer period of time to grasp that. You know, mm-hmm. I will work with some pro athletes that are so interested in what they what I'm doing that they want to have an intellectual understanding of it. And it sometimes mm-hmm. gets in the way, right? I call it, uh, and it's not my term, it's called cognitive intervention, where they overthink things, right? And so moving through those four phases of um, unconscious incompetence, you know, where you're going, okay, they don't even know what they're doing. And it's those athletes that look at a video of them running the first time and they say, oh, I was really, really tired because they can see it looks uh, appalling, right? So they'll go, I, I was very fatigued, or or they'll just be plain shocked if they're vulnerable individuals that say, "Oh, I just look god awful." <laughs> All right, and then the second phase is now they start to understand why that's happening, and that's the you know the conscious uh, incompetence, and then moving to a point where they sweating bullets doing mm. something that's normally very very easy, and that's the conscious uh, competence period, and and to push <clears throat> them through to unconscious competence that's that's where the work comes in and that's where a lot of age groupers fall short is on that fourth step i love the fact that you mentioned vulnerability there because i've had various guests on talking about this from special forces soldiers to um folk uh, you know my brother's a self-compassion coach and he does he's done a lot of work with brenny brown and she talks about that vulnerability and uh don't know if you ever listened to any of brenny brown's work but um that whole thing about vulnerability is very very powerful um when we teach that to coaches, to the British triathlon coaches, the females tend to um, get that vulnerability way more than the guys do. The guys are very, very reluctant to ask questions and put their hand up for the understanding. And being open and, and, and sort of accepting your weaknesses and sharing your weaknesses and not being not being too harsh and critical of yourself and saying, you know, well, if I want to get better, then I'm 
I'm going to have to take this on board and I'm, I am going to have to open myself up and maybe I'm going to have to accept that in order to get faster, I'm going to have to reverse out of this dead end and go a bit slower for a while. And a lot of, a lot of certainly a lot of age group athletes that I've come across um, struggle with that because their ego, you know, you talked about what goes on Strava and social media, those things play heavily on people's minds and they're not willing to let go of that in order to actually get a bit further down the road with what they've got um and again that makes that makes coaching those folks very challenging and a much more long-term project yeah yep that's the psychosocial component is so important i was very lucky very early on in my in my student career to run into a sports psychology professor by the name of justice portrita who was the first South African sports psychologist to the first games we were allowed to attend in the modern era, which was Barcelona. And he was my my sports psych uh, mentor and and my sports psych uh, course leader. And uh, we did a unit where we spoke about uh, sports androgyny, right? And it's and it really has influenced how I coach ever since. Just looking at um, if you want to call them that male female traits, right? So uh, that traditional female trait of being able to endure and to to wear things down as opposed to overwhelm them. All of these traits that are so important to endurance sports, right? And so, you know, I was doing some course uh, coursework with the with the USOPC over here. And, you know, looking at the coaching styles for somebody like if you coached Usain Bolt or you coached um, Serena Williams, you know, how different your approach would have to be than if you coached um, LeBron James or if you coached, uh, you know, more cerebral athletes, you know, um, and and how that helps, right? So even if you look at American uh, football, right, and you look at, quarterbacks and and you know the kind of clothing that they wear and the kind of houses that they choose and the kind of cars that they drive versus the linebackers right and the linebackers role in the sport versus the quarterback's role which is defense offense defense offense whereas the linebackers only offensive right and how that impacts the rest of of his life and also how the rest of his life indicates that he would be a linebacker as opposed to say being a quarterback it's a fascinating field and in triathlon the beauty is is you know i, I work a lot with olympic distance uh, triathletes and draft legal triathletes how that impacts their racing style and how mm -hmm. that impacts where they have greater impact and where they have less impact based on that but again to what we were speaking about their awareness of their strengths like that makes them very powerful athletes because now they can harness those in an overt fashion and they can see whatever they are as strengths. You know, this this modern concept of individuals that suffer from ADHD, right? That ADHD, the minute you label it as superpower, it makes the world of difference for, for mm -hmm. the for the child or the adult that has the has the condition. Uh, we recently been talking to some of our coaches about this biopsychosocial model where you've got these three circles so obviously you've got the biology and all the stuff that we've discussed today um and which is what coaches tend to try and improve um you know co coaches that are early on in their journey and then as you get to more experience in the sport and folks like yourself and 
I don't know. Do you know Malcolm Brown from the UK, who used to work with the Brownleys and, and a lot of the triathletes? Uh, yes, yes. I I know yeah. all of those individuals. Either met them at a at a pre race yeah. briefing or something. Uh, but I have spoken in the very very briefest terms with Malcolm, um, and then in more formal settings, I've had conversations with him. Yeah, so I know that I know Malcolm very well because he lives near me, and we have lunch regularly and chat about all these things and. We talk about the bio, the psycho and the social side, you know, what's going on in somebody's head, which is some of the things you've already mentioned, and the social aspect where what sort of friends and family relations they have, you know, whether they have a um, a balanced environment that they live in where it's happy or where the, they're in an unbalanced, you know, um, um, state of their life where they may be um, living on their own or a relationship's broken up and how all of these things have an impact on their ability to respond to training. Do you, do you, I sense that this is something that you work with your athletes a lot on in terms of getting the best out of them from, from what you've said so far. Yeah, very much so. You know, I learned about the value of, of athlete and coach analysis on the same platform, and we just happened to use the DISC approach. But whether you're using strengths or one of the other more accepted operational type analyses, right? Um, so that was my first realization that if you understand how your athlete operates, uh, it makes it so much easier to communicate with them and then add a step to that. Like, this is how I communicate best and add that to them. Right. Uh, and, and that, then that starts to make that possible. And then the, the last part of that is realizing that even if you have all that information, it's, it's only 30% of the equation because the other 70% is the emotional IQ component, right? So so where is that athlete and where is that coach, right? And very often it comes down to the coach because I feel that the coach's job over and above communicating the pathway that coach and athlete have agreed upon to take, it's, it's uh, more about the creation of an environment wherein which that can occur or will occur. Right. So I love that piece of uh, uh, Cliff Mallet and uh, Sergio Larabacial. I don't know if you've read that chapter uh, where they talk about characteristics of serial winning coaches. Right. So, you know, talking about having a vision, creating the environment. But then the, the key part for me is that it's a humanistic approach and that the athlete is the compass of the process. So, you know, that instantly opens up that whole collaborative effect right and a lot of these modern coaches you'll see that they'll do the basics with these athletes teach them the fundamentals show them their philosophy adapt it to suit the athlete and then the athlete has a huge amount of autonomy like you're in the environment you traveling you sat on the plane you get to a place ideally we want to do this but you will know so much better what you need to do to get yourself ready to race and so give them all this autonomy where their entire being is involved in making choices solely based on how am I going to perform tomorrow morning or how am I going to perform in three days time? So I, I like that approach of, you know, humanistic, collaborative athletes compass over and above the usual relentless pursuit of excellence, you know? I, uh, I, I love the way these conversations go into this sort of the holistic and the humanistic style because I I think that's um, that's just unexplored by a lot of certainly a lot of coaches that work with recreational athletes. You know, it's all about how do we get more FTP, 
how do we get them to run faster? How can we improve the, the speed in the pool and not looking at all the influences, the other things? But I still feel like there'll be listeners asking me, Bobby, about those things. You know, what are your go-tos in terms of training? Are you a volume or an intensity man? You know, do you follow the, the old Arthur Lydiard principles? Um, do you uh, do you get your athletes to use gadgets and use running power meters or are you solely based on feel and RPE? You know, can you can you just share a few of those sort of yeah, basic yeah. physiology principles that you you um, you use? Yeah. So when I left South Africa in '92, um, uh, a newspaper guy asked me, "So, you know, are, are you changing what you are going to do when you when you move to America?" Right? And I said, "Yeah, I think I'm going to become more of a." A collaborator and a and a connector, and I'll I'll play the intermediary between coach and athlete. Right, coach educator was always part of that process, and so I really really don't think I could ever answer the question whether I'm a volume guy because I have some athletes that are diesels that should not taper at all, and I discover that through time they don't respond well to to zone five work they don't even respond well necessarily to zone four work so i don't i don't want to taper them and as the most amount of volume i can get into them and then make sure there's a neurological connection so i'm doing strides and drills and dynamic mobility stuff and so on but at no point in time are they necessarily doing this very very high risk high intensity stuff so i'm paying attention to energy systems so on and so forth then i have other athletes that if they go for a 75-minute run, they are mincemeat for three days and they and they can't train, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm worrying about their endurance more on the bike and in the pool and, and looking at it from that process. And I know they need, you know, three weeks of six high-quality workouts that are very old-school, representative of the demands of competition. That brings them on beautifully. But they need to taper super, super hard. You know, otherwise they just end up being a little sore and a little cooked on race day. And uh, so, you know, I'm 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 neither of those. You know, I've, I've I've been able to get some athletes to do a huge amount of volume to great success, and other athletes realizing very soon along the way that volume doesn't work for them. It's like my one of my realizations with Gwen, for example, is is she gets more sore and more hurt if she trains on the dirt and traditional safe surfaces than if she beats out a workout on asphalt. She's way better. Asphalt, concrete, that she she comes away from those less beat up than she does on wow. on on easier surfaces. It's wild, I know. But it, then when you start doing the research, you see, okay, your foot is much more rigid and there's so much more demands on your foot on soft surfaces than there is on hard surfaces with modern shoes. You know, <laughs> and I'm sure you've worked with people that have come from like a swim background and they go, mm. I can't run on synthetic grass. I can't run on the grass. I can't mm. run on the dirt. I'm all over the place. Everything hurts after I run on the dirt. But if you put me on asphalt or a track, I'm perfectly fine. Well, swimmers are a, swimmers are a difficult one to start with because they tend to come with floppy ankles, all the things you need for kicking well. But that's exactly the opposite of what you need for running well. And and like triathlon is a compromise, isn't it? Um, yeah. And so in yeah, the low you, bone you density, to, which is a nightmare, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so you you have to spend. You, you feel like the first maybe few years of coaching those swimmers is like holding a an enthusiastic terrier on a lead and stopping it from running away because they've got the they've got the engine and the capacity to do more training, but um, doing so is going to result in the inevitable injury. Um, exactly. So, but, yeah, they, so your answer there they is. Are- you, they are V8s on toilet doors, and your job becomes <laughs> building them a much stronger door. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Now, and and your answer to that previous question about the intensity um, volume thing is exactly what I'd expect from an experienced coach, Bobby. That that infuriating answer we always give it depends, but but it does, doesn't it? You know, you you can't have an overarching philosophy other than um, find what works for that athlete and. Uh, and yeah, we, we're that. coaching athletes. We're coaching athletes. We're not running systems. No, no. <laughs> so going back to um, the running technique and the biomechanics thing, there's always a huge debate about heel striking versus forefoot. And, and I remember when when British Triathlon first introduced us to the pose method of training, and they, we had a whole presentation about why you should run on the forefoot, and then. You know, I listen to, to uh, I listen to other people talking, and then and then you look at the elite athletes and look at the various ways in which people run and achieve greatness, and realise that there isn't any standard to conform to. What what any any quick thoughts on on sort of whether somebody should be aiming for a particular landing, or is it about the position? You've talked about the position of the shin. Yeah. Is it more about the position of the shin in relation to the ground? Funny little story. I once ended up in a debate on stage introduced as in the red corner nicholas romanov and in the green <laughs> oh, corner yeah. bobby mcgee and then we <laughs> we debated systems so just in the same vein as what we spoke about distance or intensity right um uh i i would say that you know it's very very much dependent on the athlete so i would say if an athlete is a heel striker we just need to make sure that they are an efficient heel striker. And if an athlete is a midfoot striker, we just need to make sure that they're an efficient midfoot striker. And if they want to change from the one to the other, it requires very, very deep consideration that do we have enough time to go that far back that the athlete won't age out by the time we've taught them an effective way to run on their forefoot? And then obviously nobody should be uh, – uh, Nobody should be a forefoot runner. They should be either midfoot runners or heel strikers. And then the last part about that, if people did run barefoot the same way that they run in shoes, that a lot of heel strikers would be shown to be midfoot strikers anyway, but the mm-hmm. the drop in the shoe determines what hits the ground first, right? And again, mm-hmm. any of those four pillars of work will automatically change an athlete's foot strike right so people want to go to that peripheral point how does my foot hit the ground but if you improve somebody's posture you immediately improve a poor heel striker by improving their posture you immediately bring their foot in it's not their job to bring their foot in Mm. underneath their center of mass it's a function of their posture so we tend to look at these results and try and change the results instead of changing what's happening in the middle you know, if mm-hmm. you work just on the connection between your chest and your pelvis, a lot of your mechanical issues would automatically clear up just by mm-hmm. addressing your dynamic core function. <laughs> I um I recorded a podcast with Shane Benzie, who's a he is a running coach, but he, he wrote a book called The Lost Art of Running, 
And he says, I'm, I'm not really a running coach. I'm a movement coach. And he, he talks about posture and about the position of the chest, the position of the hips and all of that stuff, a little bit of vertical oscillation. And he said, actually, if you can do all of these things, you can actually inc- increase your cadence naturally just because your body's responding in the right way. And he also plays, he, he also puts a lot of emphasis in tensegrity and fascia and how fascia creates elastic recoil if you actually have the right posture. So those fascial tensions in the front and the back of the body, they need to both be tense. So if you're leaning too far forward from the hips, one lot of fascia will be slack, the other bit will be over tight and you won't get the amount of elastic recoil that you would do if everything is in the right is in the right place. It's, it's, it's an interesting concept and, and I, I really liked his approach because from my own perspective of the movement practice, all of that stuff seems to mould together quite nicely to to create better looking runners. And when they look better, back to our energy of conversation, they can maintain their form for longer and be efficient. Yeah. If you can increase somebody's velocity and increase somebody's cadence and increase somebody's leg spring stiffness without alluding to any of those three things, and they actually focusing on what they can do out of a toolbox while they're racing or while they're training hard, and you say to them, did I at any point in time ask you to accelerate? Did I at any point in time ask you to increase your cadence? Did I at any point in time ask you to increase your leg spring stiffness? Of course not. But you have done all three of those things by using drills that are available in your toolbox no matter how fatigued you are and mm-hmm. no matter how hot you are and no matter how depleted you are. You know, that's the holy grail right there, right? So I remember uh, a young lady that I was working with in Chicago, and she was a beginner runner, and she had desperately wanted to run the Chicago Marathon. But from for various reasons, she she found it very difficult to continue running for longer than three minutes at a time, all right? And I spent like maybe 45 minutes with her, and there was a moment in the session where she broke down and started weeping. And she said, if I'd known that running was this easy, mm-hmm. where could I have gone? What could I have done? You know, so it was more a question of restoration than it was a question of teaching them a new skill. It's just people have a concept of running. And the more they are involved in the sport and the more they geek out, the more they become conceptual about it. And this intervenes with, with, their, with their natural capability to move healthily. So, Bobby, I'm conscious of the time, and I know um, we're yep. coming to the close of this call, but I, I wondered if that um, last statement would help us move quite nicely into how do we advise older athletes who are in their um, over 50s, uh, coming up to their 50s, over 50. We talked we talk before we started recording about a friend of ours who's you know got some knee issues at the moment, and he's wanting to continue running, but injuries preventing that. Um, I wonder if less focus on actually going out and running for two hours and more focus on the biomechanics and some of those other things we've mentioned might help our older runners to stay healthy and still get a decent level of running performance. Yeah, so <laughs> um, I actually wrote some notes on that because, uh, you know, I, I you you sent me that beautiful questionnaire beforehand. But I, you know, I can't put my finger on it right now. But what, but what I had, had, I remember very clearly of what I was thinking, and it was this: 
I think it was Dave Costiel who did research with Masters runners and found out that their stride length got shorter as they got older mm-hmm. and their cadence stayed the same as they got older over the same distances. Um, and so, and then the, the other thing that he discovered that there was a non-linear decrease in calf complex or calf complex Achilles soleus gastroc strength as they got older. That seemed to fail sooner. So foot mm-hmm. support um, seemed to uh, decelerate sooner than, say, quads and hamstrings and glutes and core. Yep. So yep. I would say over, overemphasize those areas. The second thing is is that what is diminishing from their mid-20s, if they're not paying attention, is power and strength. And so mm-hmm. they they have all the endurance in the world. They can't translate the endurance into running speed because running is such a high power sport. It's not a strength sport. It's a power sport. And the power is required for rapid joint stabilization, not, not joint extension, right? And so getting into a point where they're literally doing building themselves up to a point where they can do some plyometric work, some pogo, some little split mm-hmm. jumps, that kind of thing. That, to me, from a from a biomechanical standpoint, would be huge. They could reduce their volume and their duration on the run by 50% and go spend it on that kind of stuff, and they will get so much more bang for their buck in their time usage. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with that, Bobby. I think, you know, I've done a lot of work with um, – and had a lot of conversations with the physiotherapists who work with elite runners and elite triathletes and definitely the finding certainly with the triathletes is about 70 to 80 percent of the injuries they get from running most of those are lower leg most of them around the calf and the achilles um for over 40s athletes that doesn't change but what what i think there was some research that the physio shared with me by paul devita about the relationship between age and running biomechanics and exactly what you've just described there loss of elasticity around the calf, loss of strength around the calf. So the ping to spring gets lost. And she was recommending just just two or three minutes of skipping every day. It's self-limiting. So you can't, if you're not very good at skipping, you won't be able to do too much that your calves are sore because you'll just keep standing on the rope. And as you get a bit better and get a bit more conditioned, you can go for two to three minutes. It's always it's also a great um, functional warm-up for running, isn't it? A, a little bit of skipping. Um, and there's that mm-hmm. hand-eye coordination yeah. thing as well. Um, and, um, you know, we have this debate about should I run long for those triathletes and runners who are doing marathon events? And th- the question for me there is, well, when, at what point does your running start to fail? Does your technique start to drop off and your gait changes and you start picking up those little niggles just because you're landing badly and you're not, and you're not pushing off. So to do the stuff that we've just talked about there, the biomechanical stuff, the reaction type work the strength work and the balance seems to make well, it seems to make absolute sense to me. And if we could get athletes yep. to just let go of that whole volume thing, if they wanted to prolong their career and do some of the other stuff that's going to just support all of that, because they've all got back to your analogy about the, uh, the V8 on a, on a, you know, on a kitchen door. My analogy <laughs> is that they're like a classic old car where they've got a beautiful engine, but the body works letting them down and they need to work on the suspension yes. and the chassis. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, there, there's sh- sh- so many critical pieces there where 
we need to throw away the concept of distance. So we want to add in the, the concept of time. And duration is not negatively impact as your best training modality if you make it intermittent. Yeah. We got to remove the ego from walk run. Walk run, ninety nine percent of our community will run so much faster, so much further, so much more economically from a nutritional standpoint as well as a muscle endurance standpoint. Right. So a lot of the work that we do is not about how they run when they are fresh; it's how long can they retain effective running, and mm-hmm. all of those things are assisted by intermittent running. Training for time. Your physiology is based on time and intensity. It's not based on on distance at all. You know, if I'm training an athlete to run a one-hour half marathon, all right, they only have to be on their legs for one hour. Somebody else runs a half marathon, they're going to take two and a half hours to run that half marathon. They need much more muscle endurance. But I've um, I did a podcast with uh, Phil Maffetone. And he used to work with a lot of runners on the East Coast and and see them as part of his physician's practice. And I remember him saying that if he had somebody that was coming to him that wanted to do an ultra race and he was concerned about them getting injured, he would say, right, I want you to start this run by going out walking briskly for 45 minutes and feel free to do 30 seconds of running drills or some of those dynamic mobility things that you mentioned earlier and then run for two hours. And then instead of adding more running on, just walk for another 45 minutes at the end. So you've spent three and a half hours on your legs, but but you're not introducing that fatigue or that injury potential. Um, and he felt that that was a far better way, but he had to manage, he had to help them manage the ego thing. And he said, that was my biggest challenge, convincing them that if they wanted to get to these better running times, they had to park the ego for a little bit. Yeah, and and the opposite it works on the opposite end of the scale too. If you've got a fourteen year old who's coming into mm-hmm. triathlon, right, and their heart rate gets out of control really, really quickly, like they start approaching like zone three and they lose control of their breathing, right, and you know their their heart rate skyrockets. What is the answer for that kid? Go and develop your heart. Go and walk. Go and do long distance stuff at very very low intensities. That's what you want to do, right? So don't bludgeon them with quality early on. A lot of the new triathlon uh, programs coming out of Europe are doing that. It's just like skills on the bike, uh, duration on the bike, duration in the water, skills in the water. But on the run, very, very few um, pieces of quality, mostly just build that very, very low intensity capability and keep the neurologic intact with alactic work. When the Brownleys first started in Leeds, um, they went and started working with Malcolm Brown at the age of 14 or 15. And they were doing a lot of running then, but a lot of low-intensity stuff. And they used to go to the track, but Malcolm would have them running no more than three or 400 metres at a time. And with long recoveries, but 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 fast. Um, and building. So it is, it's, it's very much a polarised approach there. So, you know, less than 5% of the volume at high intensity. 90% of it low intensity let them let them build up the other physiological parts on the swim and the bike where they're less likely to get injured um and that that was the model that they followed and you know it was very successful obviously um you know you just look at the medal tables so uh, um yeah i mean i you know the more people i talk to like yourself bobby and maffetone and um you know malcolm brown some of the other great coaches there's definitely a shared 
understanding of the best way to develop athletes for longevity and success. Um, there's a, an awful lot of similarities there. And it's the sort of things that I've been trying to educate the age groupers to do. You know, they all want to know what, what the secrets of the pros. Well, actually, these are the secrets of the pros. There's not a great deal of zone three and zone four work. It's, it's either end and, um, yeah, but, it's, but there's so much more to it than just the training. So I really appreciate you sharing all that with us, Bobby. I feel like we could have, uh, I feel like we could have chatted for a, a whole day on this. So um, thank, thank you very much for being so gracious with your time and your knowledge. You're very, very welcome, Simon. Sorry I had to go so soon, but I enjoyed it too. I, I know there's a hundred things we could have still spoken about. Thanks so much uh, for inviting me, and I and I really appreciate that. And and good luck to all of your you know listeners and viewers uh, with with their various aspirations. I hope they got something out of this. Brilliant. Thank you, Bobby McGee. Thank you again to Bobby for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. We talked about a lot of stuff and you can find links to many of those in the show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go along to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, and if you have the time, we would love it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find a link for that in the show notes below. Now, if you remember back in the introduction, I briefly mentioned our new membership program. This podcast, my website and my regular news- newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance with me interpreting the science and then translating it into easy to understand lessons for you. So if you enjoy this podcast, I've created this membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth, exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performances to the next level. And if you'd like to learn more about this and access the member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonward.co.uk, and click on the link that says Work With Me. You'll also find a link to the exclusive membership club known as the SWAT Inner Circle in the show notes below. If you'd like to find me on social media, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, like most other people, and you will find me as the triathlon coach or triathlon coach. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you again for being here, and I'll see you on the next episode.